All right, we're in Jonah chapter 4, and I invite you to certainly open up and turn, turn uh, there in your Bibles if you would like to follow along. Uh, we have it here on the screen behind me as well, uh, but certainly invite you to open up God's Word. Uh, so let me read this for us first, and then we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit. This is Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to Tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of God. What a mysterious and confusing man Jonah is, and highly relatable. Because of that, what an amazing text here. God ends with a question. Really, Jonah's kind of questioning his own role, his own calling in life, but he's actually questioning God. And in the end, God kind of turns that on him and asks a question of him as well. And that question elicits a response that shows God is compassionate. He cares for the nations. And that's in contrast to Jonah, who's supposed to reflect God's heart but is having a hard time doing it. Now, I think that probably describes a lot of us. Even if we're people who are convinced the Bible is real and we're followers of Christ, we long to walk in his ways and reflect his love for everybody. Love God, love others, but we find it challenging to do so. And because of that, Jonah is somebody who is highly relatable for all of us. There's a big gap between what we want to do and what we actually do. Or certainly the motives of our own heart. If we do what's right, are we doing it for the right reasons? And Jonah here is a great picture, and really God is obviously doing all kinds of things in this text, not only in Jonah, but showing us that his heart is for the nations. His heart is for people who don't deserve his goodness given to them. In Jonah chapter 1, if this is not familiar to you, Jonah gets a call from God to go and to preach 
a word against some of the, Israeli, the enemies of Israel, the Ninevites. And he runs away from God. That's what happens in Jonah chapter 1. And we're told why here. He didn't want these people who don't deserve God's love to hear about it. So he runs in the opposite direction. He's thrown into the, the water. You can go back and read Jonah 1 a little bit later. Uh, and, and then everything calms down. And a great fish swallows him. He has a near-death experience in Jonah chapter 2. And that's kind of what it takes to wake him up from his own agenda and say, would you get on board with mine? And he says, I'm in, Lord. So in Jonah chapter 3, he goes and he begins giving the message. Last week we saw it was just five words in Hebrew. In our English Bibles, it's a little bit longer. I don't know if it's five words in Tamil or simplified Chinese or whatever, but it's definitely longer in English. But the message that he gives to them is something like we suggested, you are in trouble now, right? That's what he says. And, and, and so he's, he's giving them, he's doing what God says, and they respond in obedience. They have this dramatic kind of nationwide demonstration of what we call repentance. A, a physical outward um, understanding that something is wrong on the inside. And then you have to turn to find a place to, to get relief from that deep sense that something is wrong. And Jonah is saying you can only find that in the God of the Bible. That's what Jonah chapter 4 is about then, his response. Uh, a friend of mine years ago, probably 25 years ago, some of you know Scott, Scott Brown. I remember him preaching on this passage um, before our mother church was even built. And he, he, came, he came out of the, some of you may have heard this before, he, you know, he, he was working on it and he just came out of the office and he said, I've got it for this text. And he said, I've got the three points, which everybody's always looking for. It's Nineveh repented, God relented, and Jonah resented. That's what he said. And that's a pretty good you know, summary of this text. These people respond in repentance. They repent, and God does draw back. He relents, and Jonah should be excited about it, as we've said. But instead, he's bitter. In fact, he's angry. And that seems a little odd. Look, if you're a student here this morning, and when you're a senior, you get a, a perfect score on your ACT. I, can you imagine some of the scholarships that would be available, all the hard work that you've done? Maybe you're a businessman who closes a huge sale, or just a devout mother who's walking in God's ways and longs and prays for children to do the same. And after, after 50 years, you look back and all of your children are, are, are walking intimately with God and they're, they're, your heart would just be filled with, with gratitude and, and praise. Sit back and soak it in. What a great return on all that investment because there are so many people who never see that. Most students here aren't going to get a perfect mark on their ACTs. And most people are probably going to struggle in their career with accomplishing what they want. And I know there are many parents who look back and are filled with sorrow, too. So Jonah, what's his vocation? What's his calling? He's a prophet. He is called by God to proclaim God's word to people. He's, he's calling them to conform 
to God's word, to make the right changes in life and then live well before the face of God. John the Baptist did the same in the New Testament. This prophet who was a voice calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Change your life. Call on God. Do justice. Help the needy. Live the right way. And Jonah declares this to a whole city, a well-populated and leading city for the day, this message of judgment. And they respond, like many did in John the Baptist's day, with the fruit of repentance. If I said to you today, your soul is in trouble, and you respond, what must I do to be saved, Mark? What do I do? You've told me that I'm like everybody else in this, running away from God. And I will never find satisfaction. And I finally believe it. What do I do? And that's a dream, right? I can guarantee everybody who's a a, a pastor, that's what you want. Somebody to know that they desperately need God. What do I do to be saved? And if I say, you have to trust in Jesus alone. He's the one who's come. He's the greater Jonah. You will never find satisfaction. You were designed to worship him only. Everything else is a false idol. And you say, yes, I believe it. And you pray fervently. You tear your clothes. I've been walking in the wrong way. You start weeping. You don't care about lunch at noon. All you care about is being right with God. It doesn't matter how long this takes. Tell me Invest in me. I want to know more. This needs to be my food. It's doing the will of God. It'd be something like that. (laughs) Think if I hop on a plane and go to a remote village and I declare the same thing and the whole village says, yes, we believe. I'd come back here and I'd have a pretty remarkable story of grace, don't you think, to share? I just went over and I just said, you're all in trouble. And they said, we believe. (laughs) It's unbelievable. You guys got to go see it. Why isn't that happening in this text? Jonah doesn't reply that way. He doesn't respond. And and you already saw it. How how does Jonah respond? He was greatly displeased. And he became angry. In fact, he was so angry, he said, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. This kind of sounds like the angst of a teenager, doesn't it? (laughs) It's like you can't see the bigger picture, and, and, and everything has come undone. Why in the world would he respond this way? Is he a bigot who hates the Assyrian race? Is he a hyper-nationalist who only wants salvation to come to the Jews? Is he mentally unstable? (laughs) Well, you could probably make a case for each. And we could live in the world of speculation, except we don't have to. The diagnosis comes from Jonah himself. Is this not what I said? When I was still at home, that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah has a problem with God's sense of justice, with his application of it, where God is extending mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's his problem. They don't deserve it. We talked about how awful the Ninevites were. Of course they didn't deserve it. Does Jonah think he does? Is he so much different than they are? 
Do you remember how, how God calls the Israelites to himself? I didn't call you because you were different than anybody else. You had anything special. In fact, you're a stiff-necked people. And I'm going to display my unlimited patience in you. That's why you're here. That's why you even have this call. Who do you think you are? You're in exactly the same place as they are, except for the grace of God. And God asks this penetrating question that reveals the heart of Jonah in verse 4. Have you any right to be angry? Do you really deserve to be angry? At my demonstration of compassion to people who, who don't deserve it, what right do you have to feel this intense anger? And we've seen this type of interaction between man and God before in the Bible, in the book of Job. The oldest book of the Bible deals with this classic human dilemma. How can a good person suffer? How can a just God allow pain? Don't we have a stake or a right on receiving blessings from God for living a life really well? I've lived a good life. I deserve God's blessing. And they're reasonable questions. They're human questions. And at the end of the book, God himself then, just like in Jonah, asks a series of questions as we grapple with God's justice and how he works. Uh, listen to what he says just to remind you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the cloud, clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Where were you? And Job has no response, of course, because he has a beginning and end. He didn't even exist at that point. We all have a gravestone of some sort with a born and a death date. But not God. He always has been and he always will be. Job's limited by time and space. God is not. Job is not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. God is. And so at the end of the day, it seems, Jonah, understandably so, but the root of it is he has a problem with God being God. He'd like to be God. You know, wouldn't it be nice if he could just set the rules for how the world operates and who deserves God's compassion? Notice how it's always yourself who deserves it, not somebody else, if you set those rules up. At least that seems that that'd be the case for Jonah. And we saw this back in chapter 1. Jonah was unwilling to do what God asked him. He was under the false impression he could run away. But that's not possible, as you'll see next week in Psalm 139 that Bill's preaching. Jonah was under the false impression he could get away from God. And God even uses Jonah's disobedience to further his great name, and the ship full of sailors turned into worshipers of the God of the Bible. This whole book is thick with God being God. God doing things only God can do. That's it. I mean, from the beginning, we see this entire stream of, stream of events. God provides the great fish to swallow Jonah. But he sent the storm to begin with. He, he commands the fish to deposit Jonah to the dry land. What does he do? 
He provides a vine in this chapter to give shade to Jonah, the worm that chews the vine so that it withers, the scorching east wind. Everyone says God sent, God provides, God provides, God commands. He's in control of everything. And poor Jonah, he just wants to die. There's no sunscreen with SPF high enough to protect him. And so the un unquestionable view of the book of Jonah is that God is sovereign. He commands everything. He sends everything. He commands the waters, the seas, the fish inside, the sailors. A worm, a vine, the wind, and even our own hearts. God will be God. And God gets to the central question uh, again in verse 9. He asks the question, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Do you really have a right? The word anger is used six times in just 11 verses here. This is kind of a chapter about anger a little bit. It's God, God's sovereignty in our response to it. Feeling like we should be in control and in charge. And the, tr the trigger that is in our souls to say we're angry because we want things to go according to our plan. My will be done. And the vine itself becomes a living parable. Jonah thinks, I do have a right. I'm so angry I could die. He's completely lost perspective. And he's become preoccupied with self, with me, my rights. Me, 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 me. Mine, 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 mine. Like a bunch of seagulls. A movie you might watch sometime. Some, some of you may know Ben Carson. He's a, came to the light a little bit more, too, and uh, the Republican debates back a, a few cycles ago, too. But before that, he was known for being um, a neurosurgeon and did some amazing surgeries. Some of you maybe have seen the, the movie the Gifted Hands. That's, that's about him as well. And I was watching a speech that he gave actually with my, my students too, and he was talking about how angry people are selfish people. At the, underneath it, at least this was what he said, and it, it, it looks, he's quoted a lot of Proverbs, the, the wisdom book of the Bible, to suggest this, that people who are angry are selfish people. It's me, my agenda, what I, me, so underneath it. If you're, if you're a completely selfless person, you've got nothing to be angry about. You don't have this sense of my rights that I'm going to protect, but oftentimes when something's taken away, it exposes how self-centered you actually are. His, his story is kind of coming to grips with that when in anger he lashed out at other people, one time almost stabbing somebody, but a belt buckle got in the way. And he was so scared of himself, he went in and began reading the Proverbs, and he said, God, I need you to take this anger away. And if you watch the presidential debates at all, you could see some contrast between the way people speak in those things. And, and Ben Carson's there, and you wonder, do you have a pulse sometimes? Because he's completely unflappable. It's like, like this. And he's like, he just doesn't have an anger problem because he doesn't see, at least by his report, God took that, that self-righteousness out of him. And he's got opinions, and he states them, but he's not angry. He's trusting God to take care of it. And look, some of it is just personality. He's maybe dispassionate in some respects. Some of us have a lot more energy and, you know, we express ourselves more quickly. 
But when you do feel that sense of anger, something underneath it is going on. Jonah is angry, at least here, that God is being God. Life has become all about him, what he wants, what he gets, what he expects, and what he thinks others should get as well. According to Aquinas, we, we did the seven deadly sins, I don't know, it seemed like right before COVID started, uh, if I remember correctly, that, that we did that um, a few years ago. Isn't that nice to be in the rearview mirror? Like, ah, remember that? But we were, we were talking about anger, and, and I was kind of reviewing that, and I thought it was interesting that Aquinas, who's a church father, um, talked about the misdirected form of anger that has usually three expressions. You get angry too easily, too much, or for too long. Typically, anger could be a healthy emotion, but if you get angry too easily, you really shouldn't get angry over it, or, or too much, you're doing it with too, too much frequency, or too long. That's a real problem. And Jonah seems to have all three issues. He, he can, you know, but anger can be a signal that something is going on. It can be a go-to response often for many of us to cover other emotions. If you feel sh- shame, under, sometimes can come out as anger. It's, but underneath it, you're feeling shame. It's a good question to ask. Why am I angry? Dig, dig a little bit. What is triggering this anger? Is it because I'm ashamed? For some of us, when we feel shame, it comes out in anger. And then anger can look differently. For some of us, it's explosive. And it's dangerous. And the older you get, the more access you have to danger tools. Look out. People are scared of you. So you need to learn how to deal with it in a healthy way for sure. Some of us, when we get hurt, it comes out in anger. When we're embarrassed, it comes out in anger. We're frustrated. Or maybe when we just feel inconvenienced. I referenced Eugene Peterson last week. He says this about anger. It's a most useful diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something is wrong. Something isn't working right. There is evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. Diagnostically, it is virtually infallible. When anger fails to do, though, is tell us whether the wrong is outside us or inside us. We usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside us. Our spouse or our child or our God has done something wrong and we're angry. That's what Jonah did. And he quarreled with God. But when we track the anger carefully, we often find that it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, underdeveloped heart. If we admit and face that, we're pulled out of our quarrel with God into something grander. So as a diagnostic tool, anger can be very helpful to say, what is really going on? And it, take, it takes some time to reflect and to think and dig a little bit more deeply. But Jonah can't seem to get there. Have you ever felt like that? It's just, mm, it's like we talked about last week. Again, God, I failed one time and you're asking me to do it again. I'm just going to fail again and again and again. And anger can feel like that as well. And God unveils Jonah's faulty thinking. Look, in in verse 10, we see that. He's doing some more diagnosis as well of Jonah's heart. You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. In other words, 
Why do you really have a right to be angry? You had nothing to do with this. I'm the one who's provided everything. What control do you really have over any of this stuff? I made the vine. I took the vine away. And you're missing the bigger picture. This isn't about you or a vine or your failure or success in life. No, God does care about that stuff, of course. But Jonah is so consumed with it, that's his God instead of the God of the Bible. It's about people made in my image who don't know their left hand from their right. You're missing the bigger picture. These people have never heard there's a God who created them that they're at odds with, but there's a way to be in relationship with him. That's what matters the most. And you're sitting over here sulking because it didn't go according to your plan. Are you missing the big picture here? Yeah, 100%. My compassion is drawing people who raise the fist against me now in acts of repentance. And this is what you're doing is throwing a temper tantrum? They haven't heard the message that can turn judgment into hope and new life and redemption. And God ends the story then with his own question. Once again in verse 11. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God cares about this city. He cares about its economy. He cares about its leaders. He even cares about its animals. And it's striking, really, against the backdrop of a clear message of sovereignty, which can come across as cold and distant and fatalistic. If I say, God is sovereign and Jonah proves it, you could hear something like, okay, I just have to be quiet and accept everything. This is what's so refreshing about this. What's driving, what's controlling even his sovereignty is the compassion that he has for those he's made. These two come together. You see, they're not at odds with each other. You could have a God that's only sovereign and says, you will obey or... Instead, you have a God sovereign that's here and says, I care about you. I'm compassionate toward all I have made, even those who, who, who do awful things. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? And you have, in this God of the Bible, the, the, the combination of these beautiful realities... A God who's sovereign and a God who's compassionate. A God who's full of grace and a God who's full of truth. These two things coming together, pictured here, even in the book of Jonah. He's God, he can do what he pleases, but the good news is he's gracious and compassionate. Whatever hang up Jonah the prophet had about God's actions, he knows this to be true. Back to verse 2. You're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. He may have a problem with God's justice, but it's his heart that's got the problem. And that's the character of the sovereign God of the Bible. A God who exercises his sovereignty with grace and compassion and love. And he did that to Jonah first. Jonah wouldn't be in this role unless he'd known God's compassion and love. And when he wants a monopoly on that, like only I deserve that, he forfeits the experience of God's grace that's being extended to others and to himself. See, Jonah knew that in the fish, right? If you were here. 
These, we forfeit the grace God's given us when we struggle with this stuff. And here he is in chapter 4 struggling with it again. This is why I find him highly relatable. And this is also why we need again and again and again to come back and be reminded of this. See, we can slip into false idolatry easily, into thinking we're in the category of the deserving very, very fast. And we remind ourselves then, don't we, as we read the word and come together again? No, we are they, except for the grace of God extended to us. And that, as it shapes our heart, gives us a, ought to and can give us a very different perspective, not only on the nations, but even on others around us. Because when we're wrestling with anger, the people who feel it the most are the ones who are sitting next to you right now. So we've got some work to do, but it starts with leaning into the compassion that God has shown us. This is a compelling thing that you know, Paul argues. Forgive others as in Christ God forgave you until you unpack and unfold the mysteries and the depths of the forgiveness of God extended toward you. Any forgiveness you do to others will be of your own making, and it just won't be long-term. So God is inviting us into his love for the nations, which is a love and compassion for us, that as we unpack it, gives us a new heart toward other people. And it can only come from God's spirit, because that is not a natural way for humans to live our lives. We just can't. See why we have to be dependent on God's Holy Spirit to fill us. And that's an active, repeated event, Paul says. We have that one time surrendering to God, and if you've never done that, here's your opportunity today to say, okay, God, I relinquish, I relent. That's called justification, right? And then we have this ongoing reality, big fancy word sanctification, of becoming more and more like him. That's the journey as a brother and sister that I'm on with you. And my understanding for what that looks like is very much shaped by the heart of God in the book of Jonah. You know, like so many times in the Bible, the person closest to God, Jonah, has the hardest time responding appropriately to him. That happened in Jesus' time, too. A group of people known as the Pharisees wanted to see a miraculous sign from Jesus. They really wanted him to perform tricks. They wanted to show. They wanted to control the Son of God. And here's, here's how Jesus replies in Matthew chapter 12. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. I mean, Jonah, this guy was a flipping mess. And he came in and he just preached a basic you know, doom and gloom type thing, and they responded. But Jesus, the very Son of God, he comes, God wrapped in flesh and says, I am the answer, and he's rejected. He had all the right motives. He had all the right authority, and they rejected him. And, and he says to that generation, I am here, and you've rejected me. How much more so than for us here today? You've heard this word. Don't stand in judgment. 
And the, the good news is, in the person of Christ, judgment and mercy are combined. He took on the full wrath of God, so you never have to. But according to the Bible, the only way you could know that is through, the, through receiving Christ and trusting in him. I mean, there's amazing passages about this reality. Jesus, the very word of God, standing before them, proving by virtue of his death and resurrection, he is who he says he is. He's conquered death. No more signs are needed. And those who trust in him will never know such judgment or condemnation. Only God's grace, his compassion, and his love. The question Jonah should be asking is not, how can you love them, God? But how can you love me? And the answer is the same for both, because of Christ. Because of my son. He took on your sin. God demonstrates his own love. His chesed love, his covenant love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jonah, you were a sinner when Christ died for you. And the Ninevites, they finally figured it out. They got it. And that's the answer. How can you love them? How can you love me? Because of Christ. This is just a great gospel message in Jonah chapter 4. Shouldn't God be concerned about Cincinnati? About the United States? About China? About India? Indonesia? Wherever you're from. Japan? Yes! And he's shown you that compassion. And so this is an invitation for you to acknowledge that and to enter into the life-transforming reality that, by the way, according to Jonah, can still look kind of messy. We are still trying to figure it out. So when I stand up here and declare this reality, my need and desperation for the gospel, the good news of Christ, is every bit as real now as it was the day I first said yes as a 16-year-old. I still need Jesus. And I will breathe my last needing Jesus. I'm desperately needy for him because I know I'm a sinner only saved by grace. That's it. That's the heart of God that he's demonstrating in Jonah. And then he has for all of us here this morning. So if you've never said yes to that, what you waiting for? Jump on board. And if you've said yes, and you're like, I'm still struggling with anger. Admit that to God. Do a little bit of soul searching. Ask why. See where maybe you haven't relinquished and you're still trying to control your own life. That is exhausting, people. You are not God. There is only one. And that, that may come across as a frustration. It's supposed to mean freedom. <laughs> There's tremendous freedom in realizing you're not responsible for the rest of the world. And you can't even change your own heart. Only he can. That's the good news. Stop striving, people, and trust in the only one who can really get a hold of our hearts. Father, I pray this morning for my own heart, which feels like it runs to Tarshish a lot. I'm going again, prone to wander. I acknowledge that. I also hopefully, along with others, recognize that the only way I can be pulled back is by your mercy and grace, applied afresh by your Holy Spirit in our lives. There is no way we can make something that is dead in us come alive 
But we see in Christ that you take what feels dead and brings new life out of it. So we ask you to do what you've done for thousands of years and will do for many more. Take our hearts that are stone and make them flesh. Take our hearts that run to false idols. Destroy those idols so that we can find our true hope and rest in Christ. Expose us so that we can be running again to the arms of Jesus who is the perfect picture of God's love and compassion. And may we enter into the heart of God as well and say, shouldn't we be concerned for those who are around us, reflecting the great heart of God for the nations? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.